Okay, hold on. We're going to have to pause. There's a big bee or something trapped in my room. So I decided something. Tell me. I started the process of migrating everything from my hard drive to the cloud. Yeah. You know, in preparation for abandoning ship, that, yep. that, whole, that whole conversation. Yep. And I got trapped and couldn't progress past the photos folder. <laughs> just, just, yeah. You know? I've, I've been... I've been thinking about this a lot as well. I've got a lot of photographs uh, on my de on my desktop right now because you've got to take them off of your phone because it'll they'll eat up gigabytes and then they're no longer on the cloud. But to put them back on the cloud seems to imply that you're going to put all that space back on your phone. Um, I don't understand your problem. I think maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't understand. Tell me, the tell me your problem. Tell me your problem. No, 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 no. no. I. I what you're saying is interesting to me because I think that you you have a situation that I used to have, which <laughs> which is that you have a smaller hard drive on your phone than I do. Yeah. So that's problem one. But I think your other problem is that you still have iCloud photo library syncing on your phone. Uh, probably. And that's what's causing the overflow on your phone is that it's constantly trying to pull all of your iCloud down. Yeah. Well, okay. Tell me more. I was just thinking though that my my situation is a little bit different. It's it's more of the like the personal you know sort of journey back into time and struggling to like move between pictures because I keep getting trapped in my memories. Oh, I see. Yeah, I can't I can't just sort of batch grab a folder and say la 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 destroy la 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 you know <laughs> upload. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like oh my god look at that picture I remember that thing and. Or I start feeling bad because I, rem I remember something or, you know, I feel happy. So it's just this, this unending problem, which I like to think about it in terms of going home to see my parents and my mom telling me to clean out my closet. Yeah. <laughs> and it never being successful because I always find little trinkets from, like, sixth grade. Well, I'm sure you just ran into this very same problem when you moved to Canada. I did. What did you keep and what did you throw away? I, I was pretty good this summer. And I think part of that was coming back from Cuba and being a little bit on the, like, I just came back from the third world and I don't want to keep anything kind of phase. <laughs> yeah, purge everything. Yeah, exactly. The things that, that took the biggest hit, which I'm I'm glad they did, were my books. Yeah. Uh, and my, get ready, my CD collection. Ooh. I managed, I took pictures of this. I'll, I'll show you the damage later. <laughs> I, I took out every single, I still had binders. I had yeah. binders and I took out every CD. Of my binders, and I put them on my bed, laid them out in a pile. I mean, there's hundreds of them. And forever, these things have been on iTunes. Yeah. But these are the things that I've... I've literally carried these things for, for decades. Yeah. And I finally threw them all away. Yeah, good. You threw them away? I threw them away. Wow. Because, you know, I did a very similar thing. Mm -hmm. Are you aware of this? I think that you did something similar but different, right? You... You gave it to somebody, right? I did. I gave it to somebody that we used to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and then at one point, I came back to visit, and she was like, did you want these CDs back? <laughs> I said, no, <laughs> not at all. Yeah, keep, please keep, keep it, them. Keep it far, far away. <laughs> oh, yeah. And the same thing happened with my books. So the, the books I gave away, the vast majority of them, I gave them to some friends of ours from Dallas. Yeah. But the CDs, I destroyed them. I have pictures of the whole process. One is me taking them out of my 
my binders. The other is me pi them. Yeah, piling them in a box. And the last photo is the the garbage truck <laughs> take, <laughs> take, <laughs> taking them away. Yeah. Yeah, it was the end of an era. That's sad. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But it has to happen. Yeah, it does. My worst fear is that I will be that guy that is shipping five boxes of books that he doesn't even read. Mm -hmm. Or worse, having other people worry about my books and where they're going and how mm -hmm. they're getting there. Yeah, now this, this, this came up for you in a more personal way, I think, when you left Dallas. Uh, and I was thinking about this the other day because I asked you whether or not you still had a book yeah. that um, that yep. that you used to have. Do you yep. remember that? Yep. What book did I ask you if you had? Kingdom Come. Do you have Kingdom Come? Nope. <laughs> what happened to Kingdom Come? I gave all of my comic books and graphic novels away. Yeah. Before moving, because the the problem with them, I had a lot of what, what you call floppies, single issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and between those and the collected, the trade paperbacks, it was going to be like $200 to ship these two kind of small boxes. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it because mm -hmm. that's a lot of money. Right. Now it's something that I am passionate about and I still like to read comic books, but just building collections I don't think works well. So here's another piece of follow-up that I was wanting to get at. Last time we talked at about sort of internet online presence. And the way I always think of it is in terms of addiction. And there seems to be a big disconnect between like what we would consider a real addiction, alcohol, cigarettes, what have you, and Facebook as being something other. Uh, you know, we were talking about how, what's the line? Where do you, where do you draw between moderation and just going to the extremes of giving up or being all in. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering how, if if it's helpful to understand it in terms of addictions, um, would it help to moderate our use or would it just further the need to cut it off cold turkey like you would an addiction? Um, maybe. Um, I, I, don't, I don't immediately gravitate towards calling it an addiction. I think it certainly can become that. I would at least call it a compulsion. Uh-huh. Um, because I do even find myself needing something in my hands to scroll through, you know, data just to see things, this kind of wanting to see into other people's lives and this sort of compulsion to do so. Yeah. Um, I don't feel a certain kind of withdrawal, really, to, to really call it on the level of addiction. Uh-huh. But I think that there's an analogy, an analogy there that is helpful, right, that there is something about the the engagement with all of that visual stimuli and all of that kind of voyeuristic information yeah, that can contribute to this kind of obsession that can become addictive. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering because, you know, you, you just mentioned the word stimuli and it does kind of release in a similar way. I would expect, I don't know the science behind it, you know, we keep doing it because it must be releasing some sort of dopamine mm -hmm. or serotonin or whatever they're called in your brain. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know. Science. Yeah. <laughs> Science happens when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I suspect is similar to what happens when you are going through sugar or other sorts of drug. Yeah, potentially. You know, I think anything that causes pleasure is going to be potentially addictive. Yeah. 
um, even pain can become pleasurable for those who become obsessed. Uh, right. And the, ple the pleasure can lead to addiction. Now, the, this, I would not have gone about it this, through this angle. Um, the angle that I was thinking about it after listening to the episode a few times and th thinking about it, I, I started thinking about something that you said. Uh, you, you challenged me to say, you know, I should be preaching on these sites. Uh, and it made me think that there's a connection that we didn't draw in our last conversation that I think is a helpful one to connect. And that is I kept referring to my reasons for leaving social media were, was because I was not getting anything out of yeah. it. Yeah. And the connection that we didn't get to was, I think what you were suggesting is that it's not about getting things out of it, but it's also a question about what I'm putting into it. Yeah. Yeah. And in that sense, I think that the addictive quality of simply receiving and, you know, taking in that can be way more, make someone more prone to a kind of compulsion if you're not requiring of them an engagement. Right. That is creative. Right, because most of us are not creatively engaging these media. Right, it's encouraging sort of a selfish uh, way of uh, just a consumer mentality with it, mm -hmm. rather than a more relational aspect. You know, how am I engaging either with these people or you know just right? You know, I mean, it, I still have not. It took you a long time, but I still have not posted anything on Reddit ever. Yeah, yeah. Because there's something about commitment there, right? Like I'm engaging here and I'm putting a public face to myself. Yeah. Um, which I don't always find all that, all that safe or all that, you know, welcoming. I, I feel like it's easier to just take. And that's been, you know, we were talking about this, the people that give up social media for like Lent. Uh, I'm actually considering picking it up and being more intentional with it for as a Lenten practice. Because it's something that I'm really not good at, that I would like to be better at. You know, I see a lot of people do a lot of good. Bishop Barron, for example, does a lot of really good stuff through all of his social platforms. Right. Um, so how how could I, I, I'm not expecting to reach the level that he does, but hope to achieve something like that. Moving on with more follow-up. Last time you were talking about what makes something good. We were talking about movies. and. I can't remember exactly what you, how you said it, but something to the effect of a thing can be technically good, like produced well, mm -hmm. but does that make the thing itself good? Mm -hmm. I've been thinking a lot about that. Yeah. Uh, and especially in regards to older movies uh, mm -hmm. that were not produced well, that have um, stood the test of time mm -hmm. without the modern CG effects and whatnot. Right. Um, yeah, I'm just wondering what this line is between being sort of pretty, but being and also being good. How do we make? How do we do that? Um, I think the the word that you're using incorrectly, I think, is the word good. Yeah, yeah, and that's what you were trying to get at last time. What do we mean by good? Yeah, and I, I, I kind of get on this soapbox a lot, especially with my students. Um, just because I think there's a specificity of language that's difficult to hit. Yeah. And if we just sort of parse it all out, we say things like, that is a good movie, or that is a, a beautiful painting, or that is a good person. So three different statements that all mean different things. Yeah. Uh, the first one could mean that is a good movie in the sense of it is a movie that entertains, or it is a movie that is well-crafted. 
The second one, to say that that is a beautiful painting, is to say that it has, it has a goodness in it and it's a connection to something beyond itself. Because beauty has the, the unique power of opening up horizons beyond itself. Yeah. So to, to call a painting, or the first case, call a movie good in, in that sense, is to call it good in the transcendental sense. Like it's pushing me beyond to, to appreciate something eternal, some sort right. of value. And in that sense, I would call a thing good, including a person, right? A person is morally good when they, they behave or they act or they are in such a way that, that calls to something beyond themselves. Yeah. Now, the, 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 the example with the movie is, is difficult because we typically can say that a thing is good and we mean well-crafted. Yeah. So that is a good chair. It's well-crafted, we can mean perhaps, because it was, it was made with a certain kind of excellence. Yeah. The difficulty with art, of course, then, is that it can be well-crafted, but then it can be put to sort of nefarious ends. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's a connection here with jazz music. I know you like jazz. Ooh, I do. Uh, I am sure out there in the world of jazz, there are really famous musicians that technically aren't as good as others. Mm-hmm. And yet their music is better. Hmm. Is that true? Is that a true statement? Um... Yeah, I think that's certainly true, that there are some people who are technically exceptional at the saxophone, for example, but, but are not artists. Yeah. You know, they're not, they're not creative, they don't make beautiful music, but they can be excellent at the, at the mechanics of the horn. Yeah. You know, you, you, can, you can know how to function the horn with all kind of expertise, but have no creativity to make beautiful music. Yeah. And there's plenty of examples in you know, in the jazz world or in the art world of people who have excellence in the craft but lack the kind of inspiration of the artist. Yeah. Soul. Well, I was going to say, Miles Davis is not intricate in his technique. He's usually very simple in his music, but he speaks through his trumpet with tremendous beauty and right. lament and, uh, you know, just a, a certain beauty that's very simple. Uh, yeah. And I think there's something to be said about the minimalism of an artist that can communicate tremendous things through very small media. In his case, you know, one or two notes communicates volumes. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's something there that that we're trying to get at, you know, experiencing beauty in the world, in art, in music, movies, books, you know, you name it, mm-hmm. is more than just, you know, fancy techniques. Uh, those are cool when used well but we've got to be able to see something deeper there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the old classics that do stand the test of time do that. You know, as much as I love uh, Tolkien, I find reading the trilogy horrible. <laughs> it's so boring. <laughs> uh, it takes forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not really about that because it's so much more than that. You know, when I read Shakespeare, honestly, I find the characters a little bit bland. Um, but it's more than just character development. There's a whole world building going on that speaks mm-hmm. that speaks to something more than that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I get I get kind of frustrated. I think is what I'm actually trying to get at when we try to put the focus. And this could be the issue, right? Is that we're trying to put too much of the focus on 
on a person or on a character or even on the author rather than on the creation. Yes. One, one way to summarize your thought here is some words of wisdom that someone once gave me, maybe that wasn't to me, maybe I heard it spoken to somebody else, is that the artist needs to get out of the way. Yeah. Oh, totally. And I think I heard that in, in the context of spiritual direction hmm. uh, or retreat direction, that a good retreat director tries to get out of the way. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. And it's the same thing with you as a painter or me as a musician or, you know, us conversing and talking philosophy, talking about reality, that's good because we're trying to get at something. But at the end of the day, we need to move out of the way and allow truth to speak. And I think what happens, especially with movies or with essays or with books, is when the author tries to say everything and make it abundantly clear, it loses a sense of the mystery to where I don't feel invited to contemplation of something beyond the text i feel like i'm just being force-fed yeah there's no creativity there mm -mm. are you painting anything these days i am well no <laughs> <laughs> i need to be because i've got some um assignments that i've been allowed to do some paintings for uh what yeah final projects i'm gonna do a painting and a little historical analysis of so this one i'm looking at doing is of the there's a famous image in catholicism called the immaculate heart of mary mm -hmm. um that i'm very drawn to and it's usually seen in addition or in conjunction with the sacred heart of jesus mm -hmm. uh, so you often see two different icons together um and i last year i painted a sacred heart of jesus and so it's always been on my mind to want to do an, an, an Immaculate Heart. Um, and I'm taking this sort of art history class, looking at Christianity through, uh, through the lens of art. Oh, cool. Um, and rather than doing a full-on research paper for the class, there was an, op an opportunity to, to do what she called a praxis project, um, something creative. And so I'm going to try to do this Immaculate Heart, um, pulling in a lot of different historical uh, ideas and themes, and but try to make it my own, throw in my own style there. I think it, I think it'd be a lot of fun. Can you explain to me? I don't, I don't know anything about painting. Like for me, it's it's such a a foreign <laughs> sort of thing. Yeah. Um, can you explain to me what what do you go through emotionally, spiritually? you know, existentially when you're painting? Is it is it a mindless task or is it something that that takes something out of you? I mean, what... No, it's not mindless. It's it's really difficult actually for me to do. Um, yeah, just the sort of emotional... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Investment or... Yeah, there's a lot of... Yeah, there's a big emotional investment that I go through, even with practice, you know, things that I try to do just to keep up the skill. Um, so when I do a thing like this, it usually takes me a very long time. <laughs> um, and I'm never happy with the final product. Uh, I think most painters would say that. Um, but yeah, I try to invest myself, you know, try to look at as many, get as many points of inspiration that I can without, and this is kind of the 
tricky thing that you have to negotiate is you, you want to be inspired, but you don't want to sort of copy something mm -hmm. and just take what this other artist did. So like if I have an idea for something, I will purposefully not look at other things that are trying to do something similar. Mm -hmm. So like I want to do this series, well, I'm not going to say what I want to do. <laughs> uh, I want to do this project that other people have done, but I think I have a, an interesting way of doing it, and I want to preserve that. Nice. Rather than being tainted by what has, been, what has gone before. Mm -hmm. So I'll look at things that will inspire sort of things on the other side of that without looking at the thing itself. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? That's kind of weird. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, uh, because you mentioned the Immaculate Heart and the Sacred Heart, and I know you've done a painting of the Disciples of the Last Supper. What um, what makes what makes art religious? <laughs> well, David. Well, I ask sincerely. I'm not trying to set you up because I, I mean, I'm kind of setting you up. But I also we we started entertaining this a little bit in one of my classes. Yeah, I. Uh, so I really tend to push back on, and this goes back to what we were just talking about. If you have to explicitly name Jesus in your song, then I find that to be a turnoff, and I'm not going to be inspired, and I'm not going to think of Jesus. I'm going to think about how you're forcing me to, to think this. But how is that different than the Psalms? Um, yeah. How is that different from the Psalms? Or like, you know, if someone were to make kind of something superficially, visually superficial, you know, that, that was explicitly Christian... Yeah. Um, in, t in today's context, how is that different than a Caravaggio or a yeah. Michelangelo? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. Um, so here's I think this is a hang up that I've got personally, that I think plays into the way I, that I view these things, is that I I typically don't listen to music in sort of a prayerful way. Uh, even at church, I have a hard time praying when people are singing. Um, and I don't view, I don't listen to poetry. Well, I don't view music as poetry put to, put to tune, put to music. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, I could really care less about what the words actually say. Um, because I think there's a deeper meaning to what they are saying in context with the music which is why I like to listen to a lot of music in languages that I don't understand. Um, because I want the music to speak rather than the agenda of the author. Okay. So, how does that translate to psalms, to these very great past masters like Caravaggio? Because I get the sense that there is something different. I, I don't know what it is, though. You know, I wonder if it has to do with the fact that they're not trying... well. I don't get the sense that they're trying to be relevant to their time and their age. You know, they're timeless. They're timeless pieces. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a lot of overly, especially contemporary religious music, is very, very much a product of its time. Right, right. Yeah, I think I, I struggle with this a lot, but I, I wonder if part of it, too, has to do with 
not the art itself, but that the ground has shifted underneath the artists. Um, because a Michelangelo or a King David is creating something within a very religious culture and within a very religious circumstance and history point in history that it sort of resonates with the historical time and it's defining of that. And, and these, these are milestones within the history of Israel or milestones within the history of the Catholic church to have these figures, you know, expressing the collective consciousness of pretty much humanity in that context. Whereas it maybe seems like a lot of the Christian music that you listen to now is more of this sort of voice crying out in the wilderness or, you know, trying, trying to find ways of appropriating the culture in ways that doesn't require a lot of genius, but it's just sort of like, we, we found, we found a recipe that works that tries to get us a seat at the table. So it's no, it seems like it's art that is not otherworldly, but art that is sort of like just trying to make sort of win ground by inches in a culture that's already hostile towards the faith. Yeah, and I think I think that's what you and I are trying to accomplish here. You know, I suspect we both, I certainly do, struggle with <clears throat> when to be overly religious in the way in the things that we're talking about. Because as soon as you do that, a lot of people are going to be turned off. Mm-hmm. But you have to do it because we have to preach. And so how, how do you do it in such a way that people will listen? Well, you have to speak to the culture, but you don't have, you don't have to stay there, maybe. Yeah, maybe another, another angle here is who are you preaching to? Yeah, know your audience for sure. Well, because if your audience is non-believers, then singing Jesus songs is not going to get you anywhere. Yeah, but it doesn't get anywhere with me, and I am a believer. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's true. <laughs> but that's just me. No, yeah, I mean, the, the deeper, the deeper end of that train of thought for me is thinking in terms of when, when you're evangelizing with people who are not already catechized. So whether they be Christian or not doesn't matter. Whether they're catechized or not is sort of the, the problem. Cause we saw this with uncatechized children, you know, who are Catholics but don't know anything. Yeah. Um, it seems like the in, the evangelical in with them is not theology and it's it's philosophy, right? It's conversations about things that, I don't know, about things that are sort of more fundamental to human experience than even theology is. Yeah, well, let me ask you this. Do you believe the statement that the Lord of the Rings trilogy and all of the Silmarillion included is a very deeply Catholic book, a Catholic work? Yes. How can we say that if there are no, if Jesus isn't there a character, if they don't, there are no churches, there are no priests, there, there's no real religion. Mm-hmm. So how can we say it's a Catholic work? Well, one of the ways is that I know that the author is. Yep. So I know that Tolkien is a Catholic. So it, it's a difficult example to work with because knowing, knowing the mind and the heart of the author affects how you interpret the work. Um, but I, maybe what you were trying to get at is also the, the notion that something doesn't have to be explicitly religious to be deeply, deeply theological or deeply, I don't know, communicative of the divine. You don't think that you could get to the sense of, you, that you could get there without knowing that he is Catholic? Tolkien? I don't know. Show me. How? Well, I think what the, I think the very fact that it speaks to so many people, religious and not, is the very fact that it does get at the 
the very fundamental aspect of the human reality. You know, it does transcend us, and that's pointing to God. And you call that Catholic? Well, I call it art, <laughs> which is Catholic. Yeah, I mean, certainly with a with a small c, right? Like, there's a a universality yeah. to to it because it's universal to the human experience. And you know, this is the the transition between small c and capital C is not a difficult. It's not a it's not a big transition. It's not a big leap. Yeah. But it requires something more than just saying it's a universal experience because there is something an element of faith and belief in Christ that requires us to be capital C Catholic. You know, it's not just this humanism that... Yeah, 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 the, totally. But perhaps you can say that as Catholics with a capital C, we see traces, we, we see the, how about this? We see the echoes of the divine word within everything. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think, well, this is a topic that I really like to talk about, so we'll probably bring it back up again. Uh, there's one thing that I really want to talk to you before we go, and that is the issue of Halloween. Halloween. Which is coming up. It is coming up. And you know how I know it's coming up? How do you know that? Because today was the release of the second season of... <gasps> oh, yeah. Nice. Stranger Things. we got to talk about that, too. Maybe I'll go watch it. No, I have, <laughs> pa I have a paper to write. <laughs> uh, I think you and I have very different takes on Halloween. Okay. I really enjoy sort of the scary memento mori aspect of it memento mori what is that yeah remember we are remember remembering death that, that comes for everyone the the sticking point for me between your experience and mine is that i don't like being scared yeah i love it <laughs> i don't understand that why do you like being scared um it's hard to explain it's not i don't think it's really like an adrenaline thing for me it could be and I'm just mislabeling it, but um... I get no pleasure out of it. Like for me, going to a haunted house is the last thing I want to do. I just don't think I could, I, I find that I could spend more, more of my time doing other things that are building me up and not tearing me down. Yeah, but I think it's an important, um, I think it's an important thing to do just to help that trust, to build that trust. What trust? Uh, that this isn't going to be what happens. That I don't have to be afraid of these things. So by experiencing them now, you're reminding yourself that they are not permanent or something? Yeah, I think, I, I also think part of the reason why it did become this sort of kiddie thing was for that very reason, to sort of show that death has no power. Mm -hmm. That these are really not things to be afraid of, which is why children dress up like it. Interesting. I mean, I always look at it from the other point of view, which is there's a certain glorification of death and yeah. darkness and the demonic. Yeah, but look at the classic image of the devil. He's kind of silly looking, you know? I always imagined if I were going to portray Lucifer, then I would do it as the TV show did or the comic book did. Uh, a very handsome, charming person that will lead you to your death and damnation. If I recognize him, then I'm going to say no. You know? But if I don't, that's that's the sneaky part. Mm -hmm. That's the tricky part. Yeah. I just don't know if, if it's sufficiently removed from experiences of the occult yeah. 
for me to ever really appreciate Halloween. Like there are many people who, you know, and this is the extreme, but I think that we're sort of giving people license to flirt with darkness. Yeah. And I just don't know if our culture needs that. No, that's true. But I would also hate to see sort of a more Puritan approach where we just get rid of things because they frighten us. Hmm. Yeah, no, fair enough. No, so like Stranger Things, for example, is a show that I can't watch by myself. Uh Uh-huh. I just get too scared, man. Well, you should. That's kind of the point. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, it is scriptural, you know. Jesus didn't say to don't fear anything. He says fear the one who can actually do, do damage. That's right. But he also says don't be afraid, so. That's right. But I think that leads to a more important issue, is how do we feel about seasonal movies and music? (laughs) <laughs> uh, you mean like Jingle All the Way? Jingle All the Way, yeah, that would be one. Uh, Turbo Man, uh, mm-hmm, Elf mm-hmm. would be a popular oh, one for me. So good. But what would be a good uh, fall Halloween seasonal movie? A seasonal Halloween movie? Isn't there a movie called Halloween? <laughs> there is, but that's not one that I typically would watch. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe this is a. This is defending my point: is that you can't find a movie <laughs> that you would want to well, watch on Halloween that isn't a to- like a. Here's what I'm. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Here's a what I'm scary one. I always hate when people will just sort of blanket say that the Nightmare Before Christmas is that movie for now, Halloween. Yeah. So you've got the question: Is it a Christmas movie or is it a Halloween movie? Um, but. I don't really like that movie. No? No. Yeah, I don't I can't say that I have ever thought about it as anything other than a Christmas movie. Hmm. I mean it's got Christmas in the title, so there's that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's, I, don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. Um Yeah. Was there here's the question. Was there ever a National Lampoon's vacation movie built around Halloween? No. But there was an Ernest Scared Stupid. Well, maybe that's your movie, then. That could be. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, for Christmas, I'm going to watch Elf. You know, that's just what I do. But for Halloween, yeah, I'll watch some scary movies, and that's sort of the the, the theme of the, of the season. But there's not, like, a movie that I will go to and say, I have to watch this one at this time of the year. You know what I mean? Now, I'm trying to decide if you're making a serious point or just making a point about not having a movie to watch. A little bit of so, both. Like, because I'm trying to wonder if whether or not you're trying to say there's not a good movie to watch, or are you trying to say that there's no, no one has captured what this holiday is for? That could be it. Which raises the question, do you think Elf captures what Christmas is about? No, not at all. <laughs> so you're not really looking for a movie that captures Halloween? You just want a good movie? I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe Stranger Things is your, is your movie. But I don't think that that's something that I'll go back to and watch every year. Oh, every year. Like, Elf has infinite replay value. (laughs) It really does. (laughs) All right, well, let's play it out. What's your Thanksgiving movie? Mm. Do I have a Thanksgiving movie? Yeah, I don't know, man. I might just just have Elf. (laughs) I was going to say, I think think you're trying to impose Elf on all the rest of the holidays. I like it so much that I want it all the time. Yeah, well, why don't you make Elf your Halloween movie? Yeah, that might happen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the only other holiday that I have a movie for is the 4th of July. Mm, Independence Day. Yeah, quite quite good. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. 
I don't even have an Easter movie. Yeah. I don't either. Yeah, I guess it used to be, um, the Christmas movie used to be A Christmas Story, is that what it's called? Uh, The Muppets? No, the one that would play on TNT all day, every day. The one with the boy on the slide? Yeah. Uh, I've never seen that. Really? No, for me, the Christmas movies would be things like Chevy Chase, Christmas Vacation. Yeah. Or Elf. Or, um, what else is a good one? I grew up watching a lot of the, like, the claymation stuff. Yeah, yeah, those are good. Very good. Jack Frost. The Heat Miser. Yeah, you're losing me, bro. The <laughs> the Narwhal. <laughs> that's Elf. Oh, that's Elf. We're back Sorry. to Elf. We're back to see all things come back to Elf. <laughs> that's right. So I look forward in our next episode for you to tell me about Elf having watched it on Hollow's Eve. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. TBH.